want to go and study Psalm 62 now. And I think that's probably what that song, one, one of the reasons for singing that is it brings us deeper into the Word of God. Speaking of the Word of God, let's turn to Romans chapter 11. We're going to finish off the, uh, the doctrinal section of Romans, sort of the, um, the doctrinal basis of all of our actions as Christians is being laid out for us. And we're going to talk about the mystery of Israel's salvation. And that's uh, the last oh, 11 verses or so of Romans chapter 11. We'll read that together. Uh, today I'm not going to do a whole lot of review. I realize most of my messages, a third of them is review. Um, we're just going to go right into this because really today Paul reviews what he has already said in last message. So Romans chapter 11, starting at verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were once at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. It's just like the, the ending of the last song. Oh, praise his name forever. We're going to talk first about the mystery of the gospel. Then we're going to talk about the mercy of the gospel. And we're going to conclude with the majesty of the gospel. These three concepts come through very clearly in this passage. Uh, when I had given the outline last week, I, I said we were going to deal with the scope of salvation and then uh, so, or, and something like this glory of sovereignty. I've changed the outline because this seems to work better and will uh, and it goes better with the text. Now let's look at the mystery of the gospel. Paul calls it a mystery here. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come on Israel until the fullness of Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. So the mystery that Paul is talking about here is taught, it, it is begins with the hardening of Israel, and because of this hardening, the Gentiles come in, and then somehow, as a result of the Gentiles, of all the Gentiles that God already has in mind, the fullness of the Gentiles coming in, that is going to result in the salvation of all Israel. And when Paul expounds the mystery of the gospel, that the part that has been kept hidden about the gospel is this mysterious interaction and bringing together of Jews and Gentiles in one body where there was a wall of enmity before where the Gentiles could not even worship in the same place as the Jews where they could not even sit and eat at the same table the gospel because it is something that is by grace through faith and not by the law, and not by tradition, and not by um, inheritance from the fathers, that that gospel brings everyone in. 
to fellowship as one body. And I believe the text bears this out. Without Israel, in the sense of um, Israel according to the flesh, without them losing their identity as a chosen people through Abraham, although only those whom God has chosen out of that nation are considered Israel, only those who are called elect, who are called the remnant. Mystery of the gospel is clearly revealed in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. So we're going to look at some other passages. We're going to dwell on this mystery of the gospel for a while because uh, I think it is well worth our time to do so. Ephesians chapter 3, and the ESV translators have given us a, a fairly good title here, The Mystery of the Gospel Revealed. So let's read uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. For this reason I, Paul, the, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, or pardon me, of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So what Paul is doing in Romans, in our passage in Romans chapter 11, he is giving some further insight and understanding into this mystery that God has revealed to him as an apostle and subsequently to the whole church. And part of it has to do with this hardening and softening that God does for his own glory. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. Now you recall that the heirs of salvation were heirs according to promise, not according to the flesh. And through Isaac will your descendants be named. So in one sense, all of all who are in uh, Christ, all who have received the righteousness of faith, all, all are heirs of that same promise. And the church is a bringing together of Jews and Gentiles into one body. Of this gospel, verse 7, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am at the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now you hear an echo of that in the passage we just read in Romans chapter 11. And to bring to light and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for all ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So like uh, I would like you to think as we are gathered here as the church of Christ, as the ecclesia, as the called out ones, and as we gather here in the presence of God and with Christ in charge, that it is part of our nature that the manifold wisdom of God is to be made known to the rulers and to the authorities in the heavenly places. You realize that the church is God's testimony even to the angels and even to the demons. This is how precious the church is to God. He, he purchased, Christ purchased this body with his own blood. And he brought together Jews and Gentiles into one body. This was, in verse 11, was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. So there is just another exposition of the mystery of the gospel. So I believe Paul is alluding to that back in Romans here when he says, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. It talks about the hardening of Israel, 
It talks about the drawing in of the fullness of the Gentiles and then ultimately of the salvation of all Israel. And you put Israel and, uh, and Gentiles together and what we see in heaven manifest in the new Jerusalem is a temple or a, a, a city whose foundations are the apostles of the Lamb and whose doors are pearls, each of, the, each of which represents a, twelve, a tribe of Israel. So there is this beautiful unity of God bringing together for his glory all of these things. All right, so that's Paul's revealing of the mystery of the gospel. Now this mystery of the gospel involves a partial hardening of Israel. And we discovered last week that it is not a permanent hardening, that there is something that uh, that is yet to be accomplished by God in the saving of the remnant before all this happens. So in order to see what that hardening looks like and to see a better picture of it, let's go to another of Paul's writings. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Verses 1 through 13. I'm going to keep you turning a little bit. If you, if you get too distracted turning, then you can just listen. But it's a longer passage, so you might have time to, to turn there. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And it's talking about the apostles being ministers of the new covenant. We read about the new covenant, didn't we, in Jeremiah, which was given and intended for God's people, the Jews, but the mystery of the gospel is that even we who have no physical connection with Israel are brought into that new covenant through Jesus Christ. That is the mystery that was hidden. That the, that the new covenant would be a massive absorbing covenant for the salvation of the whole world. Romans, or 2 Corinthians 1.24. This talks about the hardening and talks about um, how Christ is the answer to breaking through that hard heart. Since we have a hope, such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. By the way, that's talking about the, the old covenant, the law. When Moses came down from the mountain, he had to cover his face because the glory of God was upon him. And that glory was a fading glory, unlike the glory of the new covenant, which will never fade. I'm in verse 14 of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, if you're following along. But their minds were hardened. There we have it. Their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. So you can imagine synagogues filled with people. And they're reading from the law of Moses, which Jesus says testifies of him. And yet the veil is there so that they cannot see Jesus. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is a spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, we're talking Jews and Gentiles now, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. So the partial hardening, the solution to the hardening, is that God's people, whom he foreknew, Israel, that God's people are brought face to face with the glory of Christ. And by and large, they're not seeing this glory in their own scriptures. Where are they going to see this glory? Where are they going to see the Shekinah glory that no longer rests in the temple in Jerusalem? They're going to see it in this church. And we're going to become, they're going to become jealous because God's glory is manifest in people whom did not seek him. And that's us. We did not seek him. He found us. We weren't even entrusted with the oracles of God. 
all we had was general revelation. All we had was the the uh, the world around us and the creation of our own bodies and so on. We could look at that and we could know that there is an eternal power. But that knowledge, according to Romans chapter 1, was only enough to condemn us, not to save us. And even without the scriptures to make us wise unto salvation, and even though we weren't seeking him, God sought us out and clothed us in righteousness. And his purpose in doing this, as we discovered last week, was indeed to provoke Israel to jealousy. There is going to come a turning, a turning, a massive turning to God among the people who are descended of Israel. And I believe what even that passage we read about the new covenant, we, we would like to say that, that that is right now and for us it is. But there is a, there is a bookend on this where God finishes the work that he began in his own people, Israel. And that all Israel will be saved at that time. All right. Now, let's delve a little bit deeper into the mystery of this gospel and especially into the new covenant. Um, the passage that Paul references here in verse 26, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. That comes from Isaiah chapter 59. So we're going to go there. And if you just want to listen, that's fine. Isaiah chapter 59, verses 20 and 21. And the Redeemer will come to Zion. The Redeemer, of course, is Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is, notice, notice that he is referencing this as a future event. He's not talking about the first coming. Although this may indeed be focusing on the first coming, the prophets could not always distinguish between the two. But here's the result of this. A Redeemer will come to Zion, and those in Jacob who turn from to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. So there is going to be a turning. And notice, it isn't, it isn't uh, the God-given changed name that Israel is being referred to here, because Israel means prince of God. Jacob means heel grabber, means usurper. This is a picture of redemption, of grace, of undeserved favor, of mercy being poured out on someone undeserving. Um, and then it goes on to say here in Isaiah chapter 20 or chapter 59, As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's children, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. So this is an everlasting covenant. Now, this next passage that I'm going to read, it really does set up the fact that this new covenant of which we are partakers and of which Israel is going to be brought in, it is completely a covenant of grace. It has nothing to do with works or worthiness. Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36. Um, and we're going to read 24 to 29 and also verse 32. Ezekiel chapter 36. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. Okay, Ezekiel chapter 36. My pages are too thin. All right. Let's start reading at verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord. You have profaned... Uh, uh, the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Now, i just like to stop for a moment. God had two ways 
that he could have vindicated his own name. That apostate and rebellious people that went after other idols, God would have been completely vindicated in destroying them and treating them as vessels of wrath. But his choice, God's choice, is to show mercy to them. And he's going to do this. You're going to see how he does this. Verse, verse 24. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers, gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God, and I will deliver you from your uncleanness. That is completely an act of grace. And it is something that God does for his own glory and for his own name's sake. Look down at verse 32. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God, lest that lest that be known to you, or pardon me, let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O Israel. Thus says the Lord God, On the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited, the waste places to be rebuilt. This is God's eternal covenant with Israel. There is going to be a gracious in gathering that is for God's glory, not because of Israel's performance as a nation throughout history, but because God is going to grant them repentance. He is going to pour out on them a spirit of supplication, a spirit, spirit of cries for mercy. And you know that there is no way to come to God other than through a cry of mercy when we understand that we are sinners, and not only sinners by nature, but sinners by choice, that we are rebels, we are aliens to the righteousness of God, and recipients of his wrath, or, or deserving of his wrath, but for the grace and the mercy that is given to us in Jesus Christ. Our own righteousness is offensive to God even the things that we call righteousness. There's only one righteousness that pleases him. That is the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is received through faith. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Now, to just to put the uh, icing on the cake here, let's look at Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah chapter 12. It's more of a mystery of the gospel. See, that's the gospel that I just proclaimed to you from from Ezekiel. The same gospel is in Zechariah chapter 12. That's the second last book in the Old Testament right before Malachi. Zechariah chapter 12. starting at verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. So, what is the first reaction upon recognition of Jesus? The first reaction is mourning. The first reaction is owning the sin, owning the rebellion, owning the rejection. You see, God gave them over, God hardened them, but in that giving over it was not an active, it was, it was God withdrawing his common grace and allowing them to go in the direction that they were inclined to go. But there's going to be 
an active grace coming where God gives them a spirit of supplication, of cries for mercy. They're going to mourn as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Verse 11, On that day the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Rimen on the plains of Megiddo. The land shall mourn, each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves. This is saying this is all-inclusive. Families, wives, by themselves, there's going to be this great mourning. The family of the Shimeites itself and the family and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, each by itself and their wives by themselves. So we're talking about, yes, a corporate call for mercy, but we're talking about individuals, families, being impacted by the reality of the death of Jesus Christ for sin. Now that's a dark ending. It's just it just sounds sad. It sounds it sounds unresolved. That's because they put the chapter division in the wrong place. Next verse. On that day, on that day, there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. You see, that's the mystery of the gospel. What wasn't revealed was this whole time of the Gentiles, where the whole world was being reached with the same good news that was intended for the Jews in the first place. And now it's going to come full circle and it's going to get them. And God is going to graciously save them. Now, people see this differently. And some would say that, well, the church is really now the thing that absorbs the Jews and the Gentiles. And I, I do believe that because we're all brought, brought together into one body. And yet God did. God did make promises to the descendants. He did make promises of land. He did make promises of, of fruitfulness and prosperity in a temporal sense. And I believe these are yet coming so that all of the the whole earth can rejoice together in God's faithfulness to his own people. And we won't be second-class citizens in that, in that kingdom. But we will honor, we will understand that it is not we who support the root, but it is a root who supports us. And God will be vindicated. And God will be glorified. And he will be just in doing so because he has actually brought them to repentance and has actually atoned for the sins themselves. He has sprinkled water on them. He has washed them. He has poured out a fountain. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. That's the fountain it's talking about. All right, so all of that is the mystery of the gospel. Now let's look at the mercy of the gospel. We often... Our, our name as a church is the gospel of grace, but there's a flip side to grace, and that is mercy. Grace is undeserved, unmerited favor. It is God's riches poured out upon us at Christ's expense, not anything that cost us anything. It cost God everything. And as we've discovered, grace is not something to be taken lightly. It is something that transforms. We cannot continue in sin so that grace may abound. We cannot do evil that good may come. It is a transforming grace. But the flip side of grace is mercy. Grace is me getting what I don't deserve. Mercy is me not getting what I do deserve. And these last, these next few verses really focus on mercy. And I'll just go back a little bit to verse 29 here. 28. As regards the gospel, they, the Jews, are enemies for your sake. So we're talking about the, the Jews that were at that time contending against the gospel, and many still are. But look at this. But as regards election, 
They are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Why is God extending common grace to this entire nation? Why? Because of the elect. Because God has his people within the people. And that the people, the collective people, are being preserved through time because of God's remnant. God could have destroyed the people many times over. In fact, at one point, God was prepared to make a people out of Moses alone and sustain his people that way. He was prepared to, or, or at least he, he, he indicated um, his desire to destroy all of Israel because of their wickedness. And Moses pleaded and interceded. So, you know, it could have been reduced to one and built up from there. Think of all the times where the population has been, like, think of Noah. Re the whole population of the world reduced to eight. And yet God, through that, through the line of Shem, preserved uh, preserve that promise that he'd given to Eve and would extend through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the way down through. All right. <clears throat> now... Verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. I like irrevocable. Some people say irrevocable. I, I find that hard to say. But the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. They will never be taken back. When we read the New Covenant, the essence of that passage in Jeremiah 31 is these things will never be taken back. There is nothing, nothing can stop God's purpose and God's plan, which he planned beforehand in Jesus Christ. Nothing can stop that from taking, from uh, being completed. And this, by the way, this extends not only to physical Israel and the remnant within Israel that are the true Israel, but it, it also applies to everyone who has become a child of Abraham through faith. The gifts and the calling are irrevocable. Whom he called, whom he foreknew, he also predestined to con be conformed to the image of his son, whom he predestined, he also called, whom he called, he also justified, whom he justified, he also glorified. You see, that's irrevocable, that's there, there is, when God initiates His salvation in a people and in individuals, these things will not be taken away. God is not a promise breaker. You know, I, I've uh, had a very limited experience with the organization called Promise Keepers. I think they probably do some good work. But I think the, the premise, the premise of the whole thing is flawed. Because you get a bunch of men together in an emotionally charged setting, and you get them to make promises to each other, and they say, we're going to hold each other accountable, we're going to be better dads, we're going to spend time, um, you know, teaching our, our families scripture and so on, and we're going to make promises to do this. This uh, really doesn't Um, ring true with the nature of man because we are not promise keepers. We're promise breakers. I mean, we can sustain for a while in keeping our promises, but we're promise breakers. Even our New, new Year's resolutions, that just involves us. We can't even keep those. But God is a promise keeper. God is a promise keeper. He's a covenant keeper. His people are covenant breakers. God is a covenant keeper. And in the New Covenant, because it is a covenant of grace, and because it is a covenant that actually writes the law on our hearts, the maintenance of the covenant is not dependent upon us. It's dependent upon God. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Okay, now let's get to the mercy of the gospel. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, speaking now to the Gentiles, you can read a summary of that in Romans chapter 1. 
verses 18 through the end of the chapter. Now you have received mercy because of their disobedience. Because Israel disobeyed. Because Israel rejected Jesus. Because their leaders pursued him to the death. Because they did not recognize their Messiah when he came to them. And they did not recognize him in the day of his visitation. Because they drove nails into his hands and to his feet and placed a crown of thorns on his head. That might have been the Romans that did that. Anyway, because of all this, the Son of Man was given up for sinners. And he was crucified. And his blood was efficacious. His blood brought, bought salvation not only for his own people, but to all who would come to God through him. It was the disobedience and the hardness of Israel that actually allowed God's plan of his own son being given up as an atoning sacrifice, as a propitiation. God used all of this for his own glory. And therefore, because of the rejection, because of the disobedience, the Gentiles, the whole world, received mercy. Verse 23, For just as you were too were at one time disobedience, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient, in order that the mercy shown to you may also, they also may by the mercy shown to you, they may now also receive mercy. So you can see that's that whole jealousy thing. That's God's grace and favor and glory being poured out and his covenant being made with people that um, really were not even foreseen in, as they read that covenant. They said, this is what we're waiting for. We're waiting for Messiah to come and redeem us. You know, first, before he redeemed them, he had to deal with their sin. He had to deal with their self-righteousness. He had to deal with their their pumped up um, concept that they could actually keep the law of God and had to bring them down to nothing and he had to bring law lawless, rebellious Gentiles into saving holy relationship with Christ. That's mercy. So everybody is brought in under mercy. The Jews are disobedient so that the Gentiles can receive mercy. And then they are now disobedient, so in order that by the mercy shown to the Gentiles they may be received by mercy. For God has consigned, now again, let's look carefully here. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Now let's be careful with this. What does all mean in this context? Does that mean that God has consigned everyone over to disobedience so that he can save everyone? Does God promise, or does God, do you, do you think that the blood of Jesus Christ was shed in order to redeem the entire human race? Some people think so. Some people think that there is absolutely guaranteed salvation in the blood of Jesus Christ. Others think that the salvation extends only to those who of their own free will respond to the truth that is presented in the gospel and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to save them. I would suggest to you without a spirit of supplication being poured out by God and without the preaching of the gospel and without the word, word of God actually bringing forth life in a dead heart that those dry bones that Ezekiel wrote about are going to stay dry bones. That that heart of stone is going to stay a heart of stone until God grants life, repentance, and faith through the preaching of the word. Now, is there a response in the human heart? 
Absolutely, but that human heart has to be alive in order to respond. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. It is the power, it is the dunamos, it is a life-giving power of God. That's the mercy of the gospel. Now the Apostle Paul here in the last few verses goes into and a doxology about the majesty of the gospel. He is completely overwhelmed. And you know what? I am too. Um, I, I went for a walk today and I listened to these first 11 chapters of Romans. And I, I, I don't know what your experience has been um, as we've been going through this, but as I study and as I preach this and as I, as I um, listen to it again so that I can preach back to myself, there's so much that is coming at us in here. And it is so powerful. And if we submit to it, if we humble ourselves to what the Lord is saying in his word, we will not be the same people. We will not worry about famine or tribulation or nakedness or peril or sorrow. We will not worry about life or death or angels or principalities. We won't worry about any of those things. Because we will be so utterly convinced of the power of God to save and the power of God to keep whom he's saved that we will be freed from self-concern and self, all of the self-life that leads to so much sin. We won't be tied up battling with the body of death because we will... Move on to walk in the Spirit, as it says in Romans chapter 8. Oh yes, we'll have tension as time goes on. But this is a, this is a chain, this is a majestic, glorious thing. And when we think, when we think in terms of the wonder of it all, it should give us hope that we don't have to understand it all. If we, if we're just completely, if our, if our hair is blown back by the, the awesome glory of what we have just been studying, and that God is uh, mighty to save, then we can rest in that, and our shortness of understanding, we can deal with that. We can't. I mean, we're not going to go around kicking ourselves because we don't understand. At the same time, because the wealth that we receive from God through the gospel because it is described here as oh the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God wouldn't we be foolish not to spend our lives mining the depths of the wisdom and knowledge of the rich or the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God are we ever going to exhaust the gospel are we ever going to come an end to an end of wonder at what Christ has done for us? If we do not wonder at these things, if we're not amazed and overwhelmed by them, we might ask the question, are we impacted by them at all? How unsearchable are his judgments in verse 33. How inscrutable his ways. We've read a lot about his judgments. In fact, the cry of injustice often goes out against God. But if indeed he is the potter and we are the clay, what right do we have to talk back to him? If he has gone out of his way and he has, from before the foundation of the world, perfected a plan to bring unjust sinners and to justify the ungodly in a way that satisfies his perfect justice by paying for sin in the person of Jesus Christ. Who are we to call God unjust? His judgments are unsearchable. We may think we understand. We've only begun to scratch the surface of God's judgments. And not only his judgments in 
pronouncing justice and, and justification upon people who, who don't deserve it. Also, his perfect justice in destroying those who reject him and rebel against him. You know, Jesus comes in Revelation with a robe dipped in blood and with a sword coming out of his mouth. And he comes from trampling the fury of the fury of the traveling the grapes of the fury of the wrath of God. That's part of his judgment too. We read in previously about the kindness and severity of God. Those are not exclusive but that doesn't make God schizophrenic. They exist perfectly within his holiness. Majesty of the gospel. Listen to this, verse 34 and 35. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? There's a lot of people who would like to give some counsel to the Lord. Boy, when I, if I ever had a chance to talk to God, I'd tell him a thing or two. I'd straighten him out. I'd say, what about all those babies dying over in Ethiopia? And what about this? And what about that? There's a lot of people who want to give God a piece of their mind. There's one song. It's a, I don't know, some popular song. I don't even know who wrote it, but oh, Sting from the from the Police it says, "Oh my God, you take the biscuit, treating us this way. Can't you take the space between us and fill it up some way?" You know what that is? That's the spirit of Antichrist. That's the spirit that denies that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, because God did take the space between us and fill it up. The word is nigh you, even in your mouth and your heart. That is a word of faith that we preach. Don't say, who shall ascend to the heavens, that is to bring Christ down, or who shall descend into the abyss to raise him from the dead. But the word is near you, in your mouth and your heart. Jesus Christ has come to us. Jesus Christ has come to us. He laid aside his majesty. He laid aside his glory and became a servant. And he became obedient of to the death of the cross. And because of this, God highly exalted him and gave him a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And yet people want to tell him a thing or two. People want to straighten him out. Who has been his counselor? Just think, if we were reliant upon the minds of men to save this world. We've had two world wars. We have wars and rumors of wars. We've got people campaigning for peace and all of this. What happens is because of sin, it just gets worse and worse and worse. You want to stack your plan of salvation up against God's plan? You want to be his counselor? Do you want to, do you want to take people who are ungodly and make them just? You want to take a serial killer or a rapist? and make them into a saint? No human psychologist, no human wisdom can do that. Only Jesus. Verse 30, 35, Or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? And we walk around, we think, we think that God owes us something. I think we give our heart to Jesus and because we did such a wonderful thing in giving our heart to him that he owes us such a backwards way of thinking about the gospel. He gives us life that we don't deserve. It's all grace. If it's of works, it's no more of grace. If it's deserved, it's not grace. 
Now look at verse 36. This is, uh, again, in the heading of the majesty of the gospel. For from him and through him and to him are all things. The all things there is a reference to what we've just spent these weeks studying. All things pertaining to life and godliness, they're all wrapped up in the mind of the Lord and in the plan of God to save a people for himself. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, please draw us into the wonder of the redemption of sinners through the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross. Lord, please destroy our boasting as if somehow you saw something in us that was worthy of our salvation. Please forgive us when we rail against perceived injustice or inconsistencies in your character. Lord, help us to stand in awe of God. Not to boast that we are grafted in and somebody else has cut off, but just to cry out in gratitude that you have included us in the Beloved. And Lord, I pray that as there are perhaps some here who have know in their heart that they are not they are not grafted in. They're not drawing their nourishment from the vine. They're not receiving the life that comes through the gospel, through Jesus Christ. That even today, that through the powerful ministry of your word, you would take out their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Pour out a spirit of supplication on them that they may cry for mercy. That they, they may believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God, who was crucified as a ransom for sinners and purchased redemption and purchased justification before a holy God. Give them grace to turn from their sins. Lord, we know that in repentance and faith shall be our salvation. I pray that this would, even salvation would come to this place today. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and the preaching and the hearing of your word. Bless us as we go from here. And Lord, may we bring you glory and honor with our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.